You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to another episode of the Revision Path Podcast. Uh, my name is Maurice Cherry. Before we get to this week's interview, just want to go over a few things. Uh, first up, there is our 50th interview contest. Our 50th interview is coming up at the end of October. And you can win a $50 gift card to Amazon.com just for leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Visit revisionpath.com and click the contest banner at the top of the page for information on how you can enter. Next, we're currently looking for guest bloggers and interns. Uh, for you college students that are out there listening, you can get college credit and work with Revision Path behind the scenes. Internships start on October 1st, so you've got a, a little bit of time to still get your resumes and things in. Uh, just go to revisionpath.com forward slash internships and send us your resume. Now, you don't have to be local here to Atlanta. I should probably mention that. This is a remote position, so you can be anywhere. Uh, we also have a few guest blogging spots available for anyone listening that wants to contribute something to the site. Send us a pitch at revisionpath.com forward slash write dash for dash us and let us know. Now, this episode is sponsored by MailChimp, the best Best way to design, send, and share email newsletters. Uh, we use it here for our weekly and monthly newsletters, and I also use it for a lot of my clients' emails as well. MailChimp also really supports the creative community, so why not support them as well? Head on over to MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account. This week I talked with Sed Funches, designer, creative director at Flippo Interactive, and author of A World Without Mothers. Here we go. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Yo, my name is Sed Funches, and I am a global designer. I work with startups, primarily uh, startups, and I build brands. I try and take individuals who basically have ideas, uh, maybe a framework in place, and uh, if it's a product or a brand, I, I take it from idea to completion. So when you say global designer, you're not ne- you're not necessarily meaning. Uh, geographically global, right? <laughs> no. When I say global, I mean, what is the experience? Um, from the logo to how individuals receive their their invites in the mail, um, their onboarding process, um, just about everything that individuals see, whether it be the videos that get them to your site or um, something as simple as the receipts that they receive from the products that they buy. I try and have a global approach to how does all of that fit together, um, and that's that's really my approach. Or I suppose that's something that I've morphed into over all these years. Okay, was creativity like a really big part of your childhood? How did you get that spark for design? I think so. I'm a traditional artist, so I probably don't draw or paint as much as I should have to try and keep my craft up. But uh, since I was very young, I could draw anything that I see. I got into photorealistic drawing probably when I was in the fourth or fifth grade. You know, I would just do portraits of all the kids in the classroom. And there was this other kid who was in my class. His name was uh, Chai. Yeah, his name was Chai Lee. And dude, he was just awesome. And so it was just somebody that I could possibly learn from. And you know, so I befriended him, of course. But ever since then, you know, fourth, fifth grade, you know, just art creating i love to be able to capture things and recreate them or do things from from memory so you know i could take a look at something 
and close my eyes and just challenge myself to kind of recreate it. And so I think very young, that was that was really my spark. You know, I'm always inspired by people who are just traditional artists, take a pen, a paper and create. And now from that, did you go to school for design or for art? Yeah. Yeah. I went to uh, Art Institute International in Minneapolis. Okay. So, yeah, I graduated from there and um, I don't necessarily know if that taught me too much. The problem, the best class that I had was typography and color theory and film study okay. like that, like that combination, because outside of Photoshop, I mean, what we were learning was Cork Express, you know, mm-hmm. that's extinct, you know, so there's a lot of things that I've probably learned from that school that, you know, I've probably had to adjust and, and probably evolve from, but that was my training. And now tell me about your first big job out of college. You were working for the NBA, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I got a job with the Minnesota Timberwolves. A friend of mine was working there, and he said, hey, you know what, there's a slot opening up, which is usually how you get those kind of jobs. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I kind of applied, and he helped me get in there and, uh, you know, start off as a graphic designer and evolve to the art director position for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And so I worked there for seven years, uh, creating brand guidelines, um, instituting uh, systems, that are still in place today, but systems that actually made the company more effective by unifying the voice of the Timberwolves and the team, as well as the branding for how we went out to market to different individuals. It was kind of all over the place, and it you know it had been. It, it was you know kind of a, a young team. You know, I started working when I was in 2000, so you know it hadn't been around that long, um, relatively right. speaking. But they had a great opportunity because they had Kevin Garnett, you know, a superstar. So Rob Moore, who's the CEO of the Timberwolves, I really give him a lot of credit because he's, he saw the need to, you know, hey, we got to step it up. We have to take advantage of the players that we have now as well as the opportunity to advertise these players. And if I have to give anybody credit, it would be Rob Moore for giving me the platform to create and help sculpt the vision of what the Timberwolves would be for years to come. Now, one thing that I noticed while doing my research about you for the interview is that you really went with design through a lot of different types of disciplines. After you left the Timberwolves, you went to video games with Destineer, and then you, from there, went to education. Tell me about those experiences. How were those? Yeah, you know, video games, that was awesome. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I kind of took it for granted that uh-huh. I was I was on the publishing side of the video game company as well as slightly on the internal development side. But with the publishing side came the opportunity to work with just dozens of you know, small game developers. We worked third party and first party, so we worked right with Nintendo, X uh, with Microsoft with the Xbox division, as well as Sony, PlayStation. And so, you know, I was in charge. I was the director of creative marketing. So that gave me a lot of opportunity to work right with the developers. A lot of them are small, were smaller. And so they didn't necessarily have designers on staff or things like that. So they would have a game, but they wouldn't have all the pieces put together. Um, they'd have probably their core thing. So, you know, we would come in, probably get the publishing rights to put it together. And then it would be my job to package it up and get it to market. And so I think that gave me probably my biggest experience in working globally. Um, We had tons Mm -hmm. of developers who were all over the world, not the country, but all over the world. So it gave me, you know, 
a lot of experience working on different time schedules, being, you know, just very mature, level-headed on how to lead the project. And fortunately, out of that experience, man, I got my name credited. <laughs> I'm like in 35 video games. Really? I'm credited in 35 video games. Yeah, something like that. Something crazy like that. What are some of those video games? Ah, man. Wow. <laughs> Iron Chef, Stoke, Stoke Big Air Edition, tons of DS titles, Summer Sports, Summer Sports 2. So, you know, it's kind of cool to be able to look back and say, hey, you know what? I had a huge effect on some of those games going to market. One of the biggest games that, that I've worked on and, and kind of pulled together was Stoked 2, Big Air Edition. And that was a snowboard game, a backcountry snowboard game for Xbox uh, 360. And that pulled together you know, all of the top backcountry riders in the world. And so we had an opportunity to work with them, the sponsors, Xbox, Microsoft, their agency of note, and as well as USSA from a competition standpoint. So it was huge. It was tremendous to work in video games. Um, I'm very grateful to an individual by the name of Tony Chido. He gave me a lot, a lot of help as far as getting exposure, being put in a position to help and kind of get my name out there. So, you know, all in all, video games was it was a great experience. Kind of a great way to segue from the NBA because nothing can really top working in the NBA. I can be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I haven't found anything yet. So, I mean, you kind of went from building, you know, the brand of a team to video games. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting mix, whereas the video game job was more of management as well as design. So I designed covers. I designed game insets, um, programs, some of the GUI for some of the games. Um, you know, I cut together video. I, I actually did the, the trailers for Stoked <laughs> to Big Air Edition. You know, we didn't mm -hmm. have a budget to outsource that stuff. And I think that was probably, you know, if I hadn't worked in the NBA before that, I probably would have been a little bit more lost. But the NBA is any professional sport on the administration side. I mean, it really prepares you for, <laughs> for everything, you know, because you're working so hard. And you're working for a team with a, you know, a common goal, and you're doing so much, but you forget how much you're doing because it's your gig. Um, mm -hmm. And so when you go and work at someplace else, you know, you're moving almost twice the speed of other people. And so that's one of the challenges that I've had is, you know, I'm used to let's go, let's go, let's go. And not everybody's used to that. So. Right. When you went from Destiny to University of San Diego, was that like a big slowdown? <laughs> I would imagine that it is. Oh, man. Nothing against University of San Diego. Great people, <laughs> great individuals. But higher learning in general, uh, yeah. higher education in general, I can understand, honestly, why working at a, at a college or university showed me why our education system is in the shambles that it's in. Because in what way? The, yeah, in what way? The administration gets in the way of what they're supposed to be doing. Because honestly... A lot of those things that are at a university are pretty self-automated, you know? You need a teacher, you need kids to go to the classes, yet the staffs are staffed to the tilt. And unfortunately, because you're tenured in, that environment leads to slow down, wait, I have to make a decision, you can't do this. 
I'm in control. You know, it just breeds that kind of atmosphere. So not a lot would get done, and mm-hmm. that just wasn't who I was. You know, I, I actually wanted things to happen. I could see the problems that some of the kids were facing. I was an administrator, so I would hear and you know, send out surveys and hear results from, from individuals, not only uh, some of the kids, but the staff, you know, as far as using some of the tools. So I would want to get some of this stuff taken care of, and it's a slow burn at a university. Um, yeah. It would take two weeks, and a regular company would probably take three months at a university. And that's just to make a decision about doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't hold my tongue when I talk about Universities, and it's almost kind of funny because people who work in higher education are like, "Yeah, it's slow," like laughing. And mm-hmm. in my head, I'm like, "Yeah, but you're, you're one. You're overcharging kids for education, and you're there every day screwing it up. So it's not funny at all. <laughs> it's kind of serious. So right. you know. But I think from a creative standpoint, that was a great experience because it, it actually helped me understand. You know, there's individuals who have massive control on experiences that they don't even use themselves. And that's really what higher education is. It's, it's tons of individuals having so much influence, so much decision-making on experiences for people that are not them. It's for kids who keep coming in and coming through the roles of colleges and universities. And I wanted to make a difference. You know, I, I like to actually create something that people use. And so my time at the university, you know, although I was a part of the, the rebuild and rebranding of the website, which was awesome, um, much more functional, higher learning or higher education, which just wasn't. Now, was this about the time that you started with Flippo? Well, Flippo Interactive has always been my side gig, so okay. that's that's always been, you know, even I think I started I started Flippo Interactive two thousand and seven, and you know that was the moniker that I used just for freelance gigs. You know, uh, at the time, you know, of course, when I was a young pup or rookie in the freelance world <laughs> but flippo when i moved out to san diego i you know i incorporated everything and turned it into an actual full-fledged design agency so out of flippo is where i created the mother's month movement i wrote my my first children's book out of flippo and today i still run flippo as a design agency even if i even if i work full-time someplace else i want to talk about flippo but let's go to something that you had just mentioned which was the Mother's Month movement and your book. What did you sort of learn from the process of, of writing the book? Did the movement spring from the book or was it the other way around? No, it was it was kind of the I think the movement came from the resistance of trying to get the book out. So I had the idea for for the book a long time ago. So while I worked at the Timberwolves, you know, my mom was recovering from cancer and so a lot of the money that I made when I was working went towards my family mm-hmm. and that was I, I never was begrudged about that I just that was just a reality that's what had to happen so I wanted to just write about that and write about my experience and I figured the best way to do that was to write a book like a tribute book to my mom mm-hmm. just to let her know you know honestly to be honest with you Maurice that's that's really why I wrote the book I just wrote it for my mom I didn't write it for any other reason I just wrote it for her and I wanted her to to smile, just to be happy that, you know, hey, we think about you, we recognize you, and, you know, we love you. And so I wrote the book probably in 2007, but work, life, I got married, that kind of derailed me. And so I never really got around to publishing it until 
2010, 2011. And so as I was my story on trying to get that out, you know, I would share my story and, you know, I went to publishers and no one would help me. <laughs> no one would help, man. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do this myself. Mm-hmm. Got denied by a couple publishers. We won't say their names, but I went straight ahead and, you know, self-published the book, put everything into motion. And then I got to thinking, I was like, hey, you know what? The stories that I'm hearing from other individuals, but as I share my story with them about, hey, you know, I almost lost my mom to cancer. And so it really made me think maybe I'm taking my mom for granted. And here's that's what my book's about. And man, the more people I talked to, the more people felt the same way. Not necessarily that their parents were sick or ill, but just that they don't appreciate them. You don't think about them like that. And so that's where the Mother's Month movement came from. I said, you know what? I have so many people telling me all this stuff. Let me just create something where we can all take time to honor our moms more than just one day. You know, I don't celebrate any holidays. So I've always been taught to love your parents and love your family, respect your family every day. But Mm -hmm. as you get older, you see a lot of people, they don't don't have that. So some people are like, oh, I haven't talked to my mom in a year. And to me, that's... It's crazy. It's like, well, how do you know she's still alive? I don't know. And so that, that's what motivated me. That's, and so I put together, you know, I started a nonprofit, the Mother's Month Movement. And that's all it was, was getting people to take time to honor moms for more than just one day because they deserve it. They do a lot of stuff. And even if you have a bad relationship, you know, there are some who have legitimate bad relationships, you know, where their parents were abusive or things like that that stop them. But some people lose their parents over argument, you know? And that's the interesting part about it, is that if it's not brought to your mind, you're not really thinking about it. And so that's what Mother's Month Movement did. It brought being a mom and knowing that your kids and other people appreciate what you do to the forefront, which paved the way for my book. Well, it's a good thing that you were able to, to get it out, even though you got sort of that pushback from publishing houses. It's, I mean, who would say no to moms and cancer? Yeah. You would think that would be you, a guaranteed, you know, publishing you would think. kind of dynamo, but... You would think. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm grateful that things worked out the way they worked out. I'm very fortunate, you know, having the job and just the experience that I've had growing up. You know, I was fortunate enough to be able to link all of my entrepreneurial things together and push it forward. You know, I look mm-hmm. back now and I'm like, oh my God, how'd I do all that? But at the time, you know, I, I really was motivated by just, I just wanted to see my mom smile when she saw that I did, I made a book for her. Right. Let's talk about Flippo for a, a little while here. Cause I know that there are some people that are listening that are entrepreneurs that want to know how they can sort of grow out of maybe being a solo business and grow it into something that might be a full-fledged agency or things like that. How did you really work with kind of building up Flippo? How do you, you market the business? How do you get clients? Things like that. You know, I think one of the, the first things that I had to do was I had to grow up. You know, as a freelancer, you know, if you don't have really good habits, which I didn't when I first started, they can really break you down. And I think the biggest thing that I did was I got married and I grew up and I started looking at my freelance opportunities more as business opportunities. And so mm-hmm. once I you know, started to get really comfortable within 
what I was offering to a client and, you know, just truly understanding that. I think that's where I kind of made that that change. So that's the advice I would give to somebody. First thing you have to do is you got to grow up. You got to look at things from a business perspective because the design, it's still the work. And that work can happen at one o'clock in the, at night or seven o'clock in the morning. That can happen at any time. But the real business is making sure that you have open communication. Are you on, are you using Basecamp? Are you communicating with individuals? Do you have a consistent accounting system? Do you have all of these things that a real business needs to function in place? All the while working on yourself, you know, because I think that's really what the business is. Flippo, it's just a outward reflection of who I am when I speak to clients or when I help on a project. That's really what I wanted Flippo to be. Um, mm-hmm. Chose an odd name so that people can remember it. Um, I've gotten tons of we got those sarcastic designers. What the heck is Flippo? Well, <laughs> it was a business, just like FedEx. <laughs> right. It's all a business, and so I would say the very first thing, like I said, you know, just grow up, really accept the responsibility that it is a business. Um, I do have employees that I ten ninety nine, and you know, I keep up with with my taxes. I mean, there's, there's a lot that goes into it, but uh, you get better at it as, as you mm-hmm. do it. And so, you know, like I said, grow up, <laughs> take it seriously. And then I would say the, the second thing is don't listen to anybody who hasn't done it. If you're getting advice from people who, who don't run a business, then there's something wrong with you. Only follow people who've actually done it successfully. Even if they haven't been so too successful, but you really admire their work ethic, talk to those individuals and ask for help. That's what I did. You know, I I would find individuals who I admired, build a rapport with them through social media, and start asking them questions. And you'd be surprised how many people, you know, the right people, they'll answer and they'll actually help you because they can say, hey, you know, wow, I I was in that position, so right. let me help you. Let's talk about helping now that you brought that up. I did an interview a few weeks back where I talked with Husani Oakley, who is a, a right now is a freelance creative technical director, but he's been a tech director at Wyden and Kennedy and like big ad firms and things like that. And he sort of also spoke about that importance of, you know, asking for help, like ask questions until you're crystal clear about things. Talk to me, you know, just from your personal standpoint about the importance of helping out in this industry yeah well there's so much that changes on a daily basis if you're not asking questions then there's a good chance that you're you're probably a couple steps behind so on the opposite side if someone's asking you a question you know it's your responsibility i believe as a designer to help them not to give them a cute snarky comment or like they didn't ask you that question so that you can put on you know a five second skit or show. They ask you a question because they want the answer to the question. And that's what I really see with a lot of individuals. And so if you reach out to me, I will answer your question. Hopefully I can get back to you in a timely fashion. But I think it's so important to help people because they're not asking you for money. They're just asking for your knowledge. And Mm -hmm. your knowledge is something that you gained and learned and gleaned from somebody else years ago. And so it's not yours. It's it's just knowledge in itself. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with sharing that. So I I just think it's it's almost at the pillar. It's a pillar of basically our industry helping designer has to help younger designer or 
you know, a creative director has to help an art director to take his position. That is our job. Our job is to help others get better and improve and hopefully become better than us so that we can hire them so we don't have to do the work. That's right. truly the way it should roll. You did a podcast episode on your website where you talked about design culture and toxic designers. And one of the things that sort of stuck out to me was when you said that being a person of color, you take culture kind of, you take it very seriously. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I have a very fortunate background. I grew up in Minnesota and I had a job that thrust me into a situation where I was, you know, one of few minorities at the job. Unfortunately, the way that things are set up now you know, this was 15 years ago, but because of the social commentary, people take that offensively. They go, oh, well, you're mad about something or you this or that. But I was raised, honestly, to take the experience and learn from it. And that's why I say culture is important, because understanding why people do what they do, understanding why people feel what they feel is almost at the heart of how you get along with one another. And to me, that's that's what true partnerships are all about. So having that experience in, you know, being thrust in a pretty high profile job, you're one of the only ones there. So anything you do, anything you say, people mm-hmm. are taking it for face value or they're holding it against you for yeah. to be held at a later date, <laughs> to be collected, <laughs> ransom collected at a later date. And uh-huh. the best thing that happened was I, I experienced that when I was young. And so that got me to go, oh, so that's how it works. And uh-huh. sometimes I feel sad. I really do feel sorry for a lot of kids because they kind of have a smooth ride until they get to that job. And then they go, wait a minute, what the heck? Why are things yeah. the way they are? And they've always been that way. People always have their own predeterminations of who you are, what your accomplishments are, what you can do. And so the best thing that you can do is really be aware of that. Take culture seriously. Take what you bring to the culture seriously. You know, don't be a ploy for someone else to validate their assumptions. And that's that's one thing that I learned when I was very young. And so I think just growing up and getting more mature, it's very easy to go, oh man, that's racist. But what's better is to come up with a solution so that you can still get that check in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's really what it's, to me, it, 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 the education side of it is, is that, you know, people from all over are going to have their opinions and things like that. But I think if you have a very serious approach to culture, who you are as a person and what you bring to that culture, you know, you can truly positively affect the culture of that environment, no matter where you go. Talk to me about what you think the current design culture looks like. I get asked that question a lot. Um, <laughs> it's very interesting, too, and I'm, I'm glad to answer it because I just feel people people shy away from this, and they're either afraid of saying what they feel, but I'm not afraid. I mean... Yeah, this is this is a, a free zone. Free zone, can, I could talk. Yeah, uh, yeah you can talk. The yeah. Culture, culture, to me, is extremely toxic. There is a lot of immaturity in the culture, in the design industry right now. And it's being promoted by some of the top designers out there. And I think that's where the problem starts. And so when I say toxic, you know, of course, anybody who's going to listen to this is going, oh, who the hell does he think he is? Blah, blah, blah. 
that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's the problem. Because if design is an expression, then the line that you made to go 45 degrees this way and it came back shouldn't even be debated. So what we've created is an open critiquing, a creative choice, which stifles design, period. And it's kind of out of control. So you get designers who are at these top jobs, um, nothing against any of these companies, but I'm just going to name because they're popular, Facebook, Dropbox, Twitter, and they're the worst of the bunch. You know, some of them are their comments are so condescending, so snarky, so just, oh, I just want to say something nasty. Mm -hmm. And my question to that and to our industry is why, you know, and a lot of people pass it off under the guise of, well, criticism is good. Correct. Criticism is great. But I don't know you. So how can you critique something? That you just saw. I mean, I could I could go to any website and start critiquing, but I don't know what it took to make it. Yeah, I could go to your portfolio and start critiquing, but I don't know the decisions that you made to get there. In the real world, I, t- I say that a lot. I say that sometimes the design industry is almost in its own world, but in the real world, there's an actual brief that people send over that says, "Hey, our multi-million-dollar company." has come up with this as a design problem, and we'd like for you to come up with a solution to this problem. We're going to give you 20 grand. Now, if I come up with that solution and I post it like, hey, here was the solution, and this is a true example, it's amazing to see all of the comments that follow that. Not mm-hmm. praising the person like, oh, wow, that's great to see that in real life. Like that was that's what it used to be back in the day. You know, I want to see my stuff in communication arts. Awesome. It's real. I made it. Yeah. Oh, let me get that back. But now everything is so digital, so quick. I post a little bit of something. And I mean, the comments are just out of this world, out of this world. Honestly, I always ask myself, would this person say that to me if they were standing right next to me? <laughs> Would you? I mean, if, if it's that contemptuous, would you say that standing right next to me? Most likely you wouldn't. And so that really means that our industry as a whole needs to take a step back and reflect because if that's what we're kind of feeding ourselves and we're top designers are doing it. And see, the only reason why I talk about top designers is because top designers are the ones who are doing it. You know, some bottom feeder designer who... No one even knows. I mean, no one would really follow that person. Mm-hmm. So let's just say all of our all of the industry was just made up of you know really low hanging fruit designers, guys who probably aren't aren't really that great, and so they just want to make everybody else feel bad. Always have a negative comment. But I'll be honest with you, that's not the case. Sure, they exist, but really, it's the popular crowd of designers that mm-hmm. are setting probably one of the worst examples. You know, how do I interact with the community? What am I known for? Do I swear just to swear? Mm-hmm. These are very just... Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's actually a, a... Yeah, that's a good point to, uh, to bring up. I, I forget where I saw this. It might have been on Designer News or something like that, but it was about kind of uh, 
the pros and cons of using profanity when it comes to not just, I think, you know, communicating with clients. Like, I, I don't use profanity when I communicate with clients, but I think just like in your communication on your blog or in your portfolio or things like that, where people kind of throw it out just to say it because it's cool, not really for any sort of effect, if it's for an effect, you know what I mean? Yeah. Something like that. I, I, well, I definitely see that happening a lot. And, you know, I think it all comes down to maturity. And the beauty of what we're talking about is that we can do a use case pretty quickly. Once this interview is over and we start talking about it or it gets out in the wild, watch the comments. Watch how people respond. Mm -hmm. They get so fired up. They get so angry, so mad, so, so just out of control that they start cursing and swearing and name calling. Yeah. That's that's not what the design community should be, you know. We fought for a long time just to be respected as a design community. And mm-hmm. can I have a place at the table from executive leadership? And that's that's truly where I've moved myself is, you know, I'm not a, a part-time designer just trying to make flyers. You know, I have an an active role in executive leadership at the places I've been so I can affect decisions. They're not going to listen to me if every comment I have is snarky. Every yeah. comment I have is, I got a zinger in there. I taught him. I mean, it, it just makes zero sense. And especially from the swearing standpoint, can you imagine just, you know, I hold various roles with various companies. How much respect would they give me if all I did was berate people and curse? Yeah. Forget what the desired effect would be for, you know. I mean, I have to be, you almost have to be so rich that it doesn't matter what you do to be known for that. <laughs> <laughs> Any place else? Come on, man. You got to clean it up. Yeah. It reminds me of this video that I saw recently with uh, Stefan Sagmeister, where he's talking about how storytelling is bullshit. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, you can say that. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, I, I totally, yeah, right. I, I get what you right. mean. You have to know, one, you have to know your audience and you have to understand the, the game that's being played around you. And, Unfortunately, sometimes within the design community, people get sucked into this world of likes and and shares and 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 upvotes, and that's not the real world at all. One hundred percent, it doesn't exist in reality. No one's upvoting my decision to ride my bike to work. Right. It doesn't matter. And so, what's happening is that there's a lot of younger designers who are learning bad traits and bad bad form, bad etiquette and they're bringing that into the design community and that in my opinion is something that has to stop because regardless of if I'm a person of color sexist jokes racially insensitive jokes bullying jokes comments that can have a dangerous effect on people's culture in their real jobs Yeah, if you foster that and you get praised for it over the weekend well you're going to bring that to work on Monday and you're going to tell the other person to get over it you're going to say oh you're just being thin skinned what Mm. (laughs) you know you don't have the right to tell somebody that what you said shouldn't have offended them and so the best course of action is to be very careful you know there's there's no real reason to offend people from that standpoint because we're we're just all trying to work so it really comes down to that that kind of approach of you know what am i trying to leave as a legacy for a designer and again 
I already know. That's sometimes in my writing, I even write it. Like I know there's people right now who are rolling their eyes while I'm writing this, and that's who I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. That's who I'm talking to. If you feel that you should post on my post, I'll give you a, a funny story. I posted something a while back on Dribble, and a lot of stuff that I post on Dribble is just to get the color palette. And that's that's truly how I flush out a lot of stuff. So if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm doing a lot of stuff, I'll post it and download the the color palette file for Photoshop. Anyway, I happened to post something that I did a while back for uh, the NFL, and I mean just just a nasty the nastiest of nasties. I actually took it down and, and, and got rid of it. You know, just was kind of done with Dribble for a while. Mm-hmm. But the guy who actually wrote it trolled me on Twitter and was like, why did you take my comment down? Blah, blah, blah. And so I had a nice little conversation with him on Twitter. And I said, do you know how much money I got paid for that snippet that you just obliterated? Probably nothing. It's like, yeah. Probably (laughs) like 23 grand. So while you're wasting your time trying to tell me what I should and shouldn't do, I'm making money. And in the real world, you know, the immature response is, oh, it's not all about money. The mature response is, really? How'd you do that? <laughs> and I think that summed it up for me. You know, that, that that happened two years ago. So I was like, man, in my head, I'm like, this is unbelievable. And the person who did it, high designer, very prominent job, very prominent job. And so I think what happens is that people use those buzzwords of rock star designer and <laughs> design ninja, and people yeah. really think they're rock stars. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say whatever I want. No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel. You know, I will place my credentials. Most of the stuff that I've done, I'm under NDA, and I can't even really talk about it. And it's not about that. It's not about saying how cool I am or I do this and everyone should praise me. My goals, honestly, moving forward, is just to help. Can I help as many people as possible? Can I mm-hmm. can I do everything I can to share the knowledge that I've got? Or am I just going to sit home and do my job? And, you know, which is it's comfortable to do that, but I just feel that you know I've accomplished enough. I I have enough inroads with individuals that I could do something way bigger than just put a comment on a blog post and and that's really honestly what I try and do so it sounds in a way that designers might be and I I mean this generally speaking about the the industry as a whole are kind of living in a bit of a fantasy world like there are these maybe three or four dozen and we talked about this before we started recording but there's these three or four dozen designers that get rotated between podcasts and speaker panels and video talks and live events (laughs) And so from the outside looking in, you know, if you're just starting out or, you know, what have you, that's what the industry looks like to you. It's just these people. And so you don't really get to see the full, you know, breadth and diversity of design and and who's working in design and the types of design that you can do. What is your opinion right now of diversity in the design community? I think there's work that could be done. You know, I think giving individuals a platform to share, but only in a way that's non-threatening. You know what I mean? Because when people talk about diversity, the first thing they do is they get, if they have any 
you know, kind of problems <laughs> with diversity in. I would say the, if they had, and you, of course, you could edit all this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If they have any kind of problems with diversity, it's hard to talk about diversity. So if you're a close-minded individual, it's hard to hear someone talk about diversity and the need for it and how important it is. And that's truly what I, I believe is the problem within the design industry is that anytime anybody gives a voice, it's either to an extreme. It's an extreme feminist voice or it's an extreme, there's not enough African-Americans in this. And I can look at it from a very balanced view and see how that could be threatening to individuals. And so I think from a diversity standpoint within design as a whole, it suffers because it's just not open enough to talk about things. And like you said, it's the same people going to the same things, talking about the same events, patting each other on the back over the same fonts they use. Maybe it's just the exact same thing every single mm-hmm. time, you know? And so uh, I've been to a few conferences, same thing every single time. I don't even really need to go to another conference. It's the exact same thing. Somebody's going to get up, talk about how awesome they are, talk about their traits of why they they got better, and forgetting this part that they didn't probably design the product. They're they're pumping that you know they worked on a big team, but it's pretty misogynistic. You know, it's it's pretty male driven, um, white guys, and no women and no minorities. Yeah, that's and that's unfortunate to be honest with you because. Design is so much more than that. Design in the design industry plays a huge role in in everything. How can we work on, I guess, increasing the diversity? Like you said, the industry right now doesn't even seem open enough to even talk about these issues. I think probably the biggest thing that you and I can do is continue to talk and understand that the way to get to people is to craft the message so that it hits them. And I think probably the biggest thing that the community can do is we should shun those individuals who are making it hard to have that conversation. I speak with a with a friend of mine and we talk all the time. You know, he's in he's an executive management and I talk openly about you should just fire that designer. If that designer is could possibly be the best designer in the world. However, if he's divisive, if he's moody, temperamental, chauvinistic, uh, slightly racist, uh, not open to agreement, he should be fired. Because it's all about having a good culture and a good environment, not just because you have one good designer. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, you know, a designer could be great today, and another designer could come along and be greater. Than him. So I mean, it's not really about that, it's about a cohesive unit working together. So I think having a more open discussion that actually exposes individuals who are nasty online, who don't really add to the conversation. I think that's the way that we can really fix our community, is everyone's kind of step up and go, you should be doing better. I think if everyone said that after, you know, a designer went on a rant and I'm going to write an open letter to, oh God, if I see another open letter, it's like, <laughs> come on, dude, get out of here. Just just write, hey, you have this many followers. You have this many people who comment after when you post something. Get over yourself and understand that that's a power. That's a real responsibility, and you have to do better. I think if we did that, I think we could start 
to move in the right direction. I'm working with a couple of individuals, uh, Ted Irvine over at, at uh, Fox Media. We're working on creating uh, something that actually pushes our our industry forward down that path where we can feel comfortable about saying, "Hey, this is this tent is big enough for everybody," and that's what design is. It's a it's it's a creative expression, so that means anybody can come in. Anybody mm-hmm. can come in from whether you are a traditional painter, a mural sculptor, you can start being a, you know a designer, quote unquote, as your trade. So who are we as the leaders of it to shun people and keep it closed? And I only want these friends and these guys wear the same tight shirts as I do, so they're cool. Right. Are they like the same beer I like? I mean, it's really most people aren't really seeing how small minded they look from the outside yeah. looking. Yeah, you know, you really are making yourself small, but at the same time, wanting to get credit for these grandiose ideas. But if you can't have it both, you ways. can't have it both ways. A great example is the Airbnb logo fiasco for our design community. It was just—I mean, I was so embarrassed to, to call myself a designer because there were actual posts about Airbnb releases its new uh, brand identity. Designers everywhere. React. It's like, wait a minute. Not yeah. designers everywhere. There's just those 14 jackasses who, <laughs> oh, I see, I see balls. Okay, right. dude, well, maybe you need to grow up. What I see is a company that's worth $10 billion. So even if they had a blank sheet of paper as their logo, they would be worth $10 billion. Now, if you start to look at really the global idea behind their logo, behind their word marks, you'd realize of course, it's not two pair of testicles Mm -hmm. it's an expression it's really an expression which, oddly enough ironically, the response fueled their probably original intent. Airbnb is you it's your expression Mm -hmm. what does it bring out of you? Maybe it might bring out of you a trip to Milan maybe it might bring out of you, I see balls in front of me (laughs) <laughs> How cold-blooded is that? Well, when you think yeah. about it, you know. And so at the same time, you know, I mean, just a deluge, just a whole day of, oh, my God, the, the Airbnb logo. Oh, it's a phallic symbol. It's this, it's that. I mean, and, I mean, this is the whole community on Twitter, just nonstop, just everybody writing it. Mm-hmm. Then two weeks later, you know, I reached out to a couple guys oh, over at uh, Airbnb, and I was like, Man, fantastic job, one, on the rollout. Uh, I know how much time and effort and energy it takes for an entire company to rebrand everything. And then they started rolling out examples and other applications of the logo in the presence, in how they want it to roll out, silence okay. from the design community. I thought it looked really good when I saw those those specimens like yeah, that. Yeah, it was awesome. I, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, there's plenty of logos that don't even make sense. Think of the Star Trek logo. (laughs) Out of context, what the heck is that? In context, OMG, right? Yeah. See, and and I think that's the the sickness that are that kind of infiltrates a little bit. It's it's people get this mob mentality of I'm gonna comment because I'm gonna get upvoted and then I'm gonna get liked. Right, but think of the tremendous disrespect that you gave to the designers, our colleagues, at Airbnb. Everyone's a critic. 
to me, it's it, it's just unconscionable. It's, I mean, you can have your own opinion on it, but they didn't ask you for your opinion. Yeah. And so to go out and broadcast it, and you know, at the same time, you're going to be at these conferences with the guys from Airbnb. How are you going to square that? <laughs> oh yeah, you know the thing that you worked hard and probably spent time away from your wife and kids. I just poo pooed on that all day. Hey, you want to go get a beer? <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't really square up. And I mean, right? The, try to try to network and see if they can. Yeah, get, you know, right. Of course. And so I think that that's really where it comes down to. A lot of that stuff is more self-driven. It's not really community-driven. And so to sum things up, you know, instead of the long-winded version, I'm more interested in making things more community-driven. You know, if you don't like what I wrote, or if you don't like what I designed, that, that's your opinion. No problem. But yeah. to go on a national rampage to trash somebody. That's not good form, and that's just not nice, you know. And no one would want that to happen to them. And most of the individuals who partake in this kind of behavior, I mean, just watch their reactions when negative things happen to them. I mean, they they have a meltdown. Can't take it. Yeah, can't take it. They can't take anyone bringing heat back at them. And you know, I, I I'm fortunate. I sit in a position where I've accomplished a lot. So. I mean, you could pretty much say anything to me. I don't care. That's awesome. I'm glad you feel that way. That's fantastic. Hopefully, you get a lot of likes off of <laughs> off of destroying me on my post. Good job. You did it. What again did you do? <laughs> oh, you just got likes on a post that if I told my mom what website that was, she'd go, "What?" Right. Right. That puts it into perspective, in my opinion. Like that, that helps people to see. You know, are you doing things of substance or are you just taking up space? Now, back on that same podcast that I mentioned that you had on your site, you said that you're in the position right now to try and kind of fix these issues that are happening in the design community. Is this part of this project uh, that you're working on now with Vox? Yeah. Or is it something? Okay. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm exploring a lot of things with a couple of individuals, but definitely Ted Irvine. Uh, he and I kind of share the same mindset on these things as... You know, if you if you lack diversity and openness at your company, you're going to lose money. Point blank. Because if you have a company and it could be black, it could be Ebony. I look at I use Ebony as an example. Ebony magazine is for a specific audience and they've pigeonholed themselves into that specific audience, never to break out of that audience. Now, that's great if that's what you wanted to do. But imagine how much more money you could make if you said ebony and ivory and made a magazine about the connections that, you know, African-Americans have with other cultures and different things like that. I mean, we're talking more money, more money, more viewers, more readerships. And that's really what I feel that I can actually help do. My goal is truly to get into a position to actually work with some of these companies that have hiring problems and they can't find qualified uh, candidates. I always laugh when I hear that. Like, <laughs> It's not that you can't find qualified candidates. Maurice, you and I both know. It's that we're smart enough not to go work in your toxic environment. Right. I look at your staff page. Oh, no. <laughs> uh-uh. I don't think yeah. so. And that's, honestly, I mean, I think it's people don't get that. I wrote a post. I, I do that a lot. I mean, this is probably telling on myself. I do that a lot. Like if I, if it's a conference or something, I might be interested in going to, or if it's a company or something, I will look at their staff page and I'm like, oh, okay, hmm. it's, 
like all the same kind of people. Well, exactly the same kind of people. And then I go look at their websites. Then I go look at the work that they do on Dribble. And they've got thousands of likes for the exact same art style, for the exact same font selections, for the exact same flat style. To me, that doesn't help anybody, you know? And I think that the community at large, this, and this is not even just a design community issue. This is just a cultural issue, you know? And so what we're trying to solve, because we're problem solvers as designers, what we're going to try and solve is the cultural clash that happens when it comes to hiring a diverse staff, not just for the sake of a diverse staff, but for the sake of having other ideas at the table. Mm -hmm. I'm black, but most of my ideas aren't just black centric. I don't. I just don't do hip hop stuff on my on my portfolio. It's whatever the job requires as a designer. You know, if you're a proficient designer, you can do whatever the job requires. And those individuals are out there. So truly, my my goal, honestly, in the next in the next year or so, is to uh, work on creating uh, initiatives and and projects that are that actually do something. Again, I hate when people are like, "Oh, we're going to do this and we can do that." That's not me. <laughs> I'm about actually creating something that is so large that you have to take notice. So big that you have to go, oh, I guess I better not do this. Because if it's done in a vacuum or if it's done in a small sliver, nothing's ever going to change. And that's something I just mm-hmm. can't stand. I, I'm tired of the, well, we should be nicer to people or be nicer to women. I'm married. And so I have a special connection to uh, any individuals who suffer you know, chauvinistic behavior or you know, just this kind of anti-women feeling, I'm, I support that because I'm married and my, I have to listen to my wife talk about how she's treated at work. Now, she's not even in the design community. Mm-hmm. But that affects me because I can see, hey, if you have a culture where it's kind of a boys club, then you don't really care who you offend. Mm-hmm. And some of those women who work there have to work in that environment because they need a paycheck. Right. That's incredibly unfair. Forget race and, oh, do you have enough black people there? That's just unfair to women. Who cares if you, what, if, if you have different races there? Women come in all races. So essentially what you're saying is I have such low regard for women of all races. I'm going to treat you a certain way. You're substandard to me. You can take my mm-hmm. jokes and what can you do? I'll pay you less. Like that kind of stuff fires me up. Of course, you know I I, I fight the cause for myself and other races like me. But I, I really, really find that that's really at the heart of it. Is you know what is your culture made of? Is it finding that perfect balance is very important. So you know that's truly what the goal is: is actually creating something, uh, moving the needle, working with companies. Dialing that in, you know, just working with my working with Flippo, you know, I work with tons of companies. Um, some co- corporate companies hire me in, and I get to spend two weeks on their campus. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you want to talk about funny? You're like, huh? I think I think <laughs> I found y'all's problem. <laughs> that right. wasn't that hard to find, huh? And <laughs> underneath the surface, you know, everybody, of course, like you know. We, you have to go to work and put on a brave face because you need the yeah. job. So that's incredibly unfair for a few individuals to make a majority of individuals' lives a nightmare. And all we want to do is work. 
I want to come and, and hear your stupid jokes or your dumb stories or you know most of them are probably lies. Yeah. I'm just trying to work, you know. So if we can, if I can create something uh, or assist in creating something or get the community to just rally around something that doesn't take any effort, doesn't take any energy, doesn't cost you any money. It's just mm-hmm. before you start posting, take a look at what are you posting. Yeah. Did anyone ask you for that nasty opinion? Are you giving it just so that you can get likes or retweets? Because someone's on mm-hmm. the other end of that comment, and you could be affecting them. Let's switch gears a little bit here. Let's talk kind of more about about you as a person. I mean, I think a lot of what you've said is 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 golden. I think people are really going to like this. Just kind of of overall, who's offered you the most useful career advice, and what was that advice? That's actually a really good question. <laughs> you know, I think I the advice that I've probably taken is just from the experience of interacting with individuals who I've worked with. I don't know if there's any one particular person who's given me kind of that one golden rule. I, I think everything that I've learned and how I become effective, I learned in the NBA. I learned working at a high pace, high risk, high reward environment. Okay. Um, and really working with individuals who I admire. Uh, there's one guy who I worked with who were friends to the state, 15 years strong. His name is Brian Pfeiffer. He's actually a VP of team services for the Major League Soccer. But I admired Brian's work ethic. He was in sales. But I admired his work ethic and the way that he approached people. Everyone knew that he was trying to sell you, but he really wanted to know who you were remember something about you and I think of all people who've probably influenced me the most it's Brian we call him Ice Um, but it's his approach to how he makes a relationship and keeps a relationship and I think that if anything like I said you know I, I learned a lot from a lot of individuals but relationships understanding the importance of relationships is one thing I really learned in the NBA, you know, some people are like, "Oh, you never want to burn a bridge." Actually, there are some bridges you can burn all the way down for fuel. <laughs> some of them you can burn them and burn them mm-hmm. down because you have to really understand what's going to help you and what's going to hurt you. So you never want to keep relationship going that has a potential to come back and someone can hold something over you, or you know, you're in a position where you can't act as freely as you can. So. Well, although relationships are very important, understanding how to navigate them, that's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned. Okay. So what's the most important thing that you've learned from your work? Uh, I think the probably the most important thing that I've learned is that uh, you know I could always get better and improve. I'm not the greatest designer at everything. Um, there's tons of people who you know, I'm just in awe of their line work, their logo work just the ability to kind of put things together. I truly am in awe of people who understand how to use Quartz Composer and put together okay. animation. So, you know, there's the biggest thing that I kind of learned from my work is that, you know, I'm always in a position where I can get better. So, you know, take any kind of steps that I can to improve on, uh, whether it's working with a client, doing something better the next time, or, you know, creating a logo could I have taken a little bit more time to flush it out? You know, I, I do that a little bit. I don't really beat myself up about things, but mm-hmm. uh, I try to look at things from just a, a bigger perspective on, hey, you know what, I'm not the best at everything, and I don't have the, the, the greatest answer for everything. 
okay. either. So uh, I think my work can 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 teach me a lot of things, but it can also teach me that hey, you know, there's there's a lot of things I don't know, so I can probably just keep continuing to grow. Speak, speaking on what you said earlier about burning bridges, if you could have sort of one do-over to do at, at any point throughout your career, what would you use it on? Well, I'm pretty, I'm pretty hardcore, so I I stick to the course. <laughs> but uh, okay, all right. <laughs> uh, I think I think maybe I think if I had to talk to my younger self, I would have spent a little bit more time with my family while I worked in the NBA. Um, I was very devoted. Um, I started my first company when I was 19. I, I own a skateboard company. And so I was just, just you know, really into myself from a selfish standpoint, but it was for success. You know, I really had the mindset of if you're not trying to help me, then I don't have any time, you know. Yeah. And I think that, you know, just getting older, you get to look back and see, you know, maybe there was some, some things that I could have done a little bit better just as far as being more open to uh, individuals, truly spending more time with my younger brother. You know, I, d- I didn't spend enough time with him. You know, I bring him to the games and let him see that kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. um, that's not truly spending time. It's really just putting him in the limelight of, wow, your brother's awesome. He, get, he works for the Wolves. You know, and right. so if I could do some some of that stuff over, you know, I, I probably would have worked a little bit harder to get my brother a job um, working with me. And not just okay. bringing him to see some of the stuff. You know, I'd bring him to the photo shoots and stuff. So, I mean, these are, these are kind of like high wire act stuff. Mm-hmm. And I look back on it now, like, yeah, I probably thought it was cool, but maybe I was doing it a little bit more to stroke myself. Like, hey, look what I get to do. I got the photo, I get to do the photo shoot with Kevin Garnett and all these guys. But I think if I could do that over, I would be a little bit more sympathetic to other people and maybe spend my time a little bit differently. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Are you are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I think after I I published my children's book, you know, there's a lot of individuals who are like, oh man, you should do this, or hey, said you should do that. I've done just about everything I needed to do, man. You know, I worked at a very high level um, when I was very young, made a lot of mistakes, got better, improved, made a lot of great relationships, moved on into video games, created an actual video game, moved on into higher education, moved on into my own startup. I like I've done just about everything that I've needed to do all the while, you know, being an entrepreneur the whole the entire time and owning my own skateboard company. So I think I've done just about everything I wanted to accomplish. Now I just take my time and, and work with the people I want to work with. Like that's the most important thing to me now is tracking out down the individuals who, you know, we, we get along, we work well together and trying to have a relationship with them. And doing cool projects and, you know, maybe doing some things that are kind of expressive. So I think, you know, I never really plotted myself to be at a certain point. And, you know, I'm not in any way, shape or form the most popular designer or the number one designer in the world or, oh, my gosh, he's awesome. I probably am. You know, you couldn't pick me out of a out of a lineup. Actually, that's probably a bad example. (laughs) But, uh (laughs) But I think I think the biggest part is that, you know, I did what made me happy and I really focused on that. And so truly the writing that book and getting the response that I've gotten you know, from celebrities, from just people all over, just like, hey, man, thanks for doing something like that, that, you know, I couldn't have, yeah. I couldn't have said those kind of words, but I'm glad you did. That was, man, I'll be honest with you, that was that was about it. 
don't don't really need anything else. And, you know, sometimes I I find myself um, looking at the way people view designers and you need to do this and you have to do that. Well, if I could get a job at any of those top places, I would. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're not hiring me. So I have to be very confident with what I've set my course to do. And I think my course was to be a respected designer and someone who is respected for being able to create. You have an idea, write it on a napkin. I will create an entire world for you. And that's really what my goal has always been. And so I don't necessarily need to accomplish anything else because I, I feel that I can I can do that. I, I've set that as a goal in front of me you know, to be able to accomplish that. So, you know, individual things, I don't I don't really need anything else. Where do you see yourself in the next few years? Just probably in San Diego, chilling. Yeah. <laughs> Can't lie, man. It's great weather out here. It's one of those things where you don't really look at how much you've done until you get some time to kind of sit down and look back. And it's been it's been a long ride that has evolved into multiple things. Whereas, you know, as I was on that ride, I wasn't really taking time in. Uh, I did take some time to reflect on working at the Wolves and working in video games because those were awesome experiences. I mean, I, I've been to things that I would have never gone to if I hadn't worked in those things. But So I think in the next you know, five years, as long as I'm you know, a moderately good husband, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I can always improve in that too. So you know, I care about my family. I care about... Um, those are the things that I care about and are more, the most important to me. And I think that's truly what has propelled me into the opportunities I have is that people see how genuine that my approach is and I'm not out to get fame or credit or praise or I don't really care about that stuff I care about uh, you know having a cold drink and you know a slice of pizza like that that's that's what matters to me in my life now Um, Mm -hmm. it's not really the accolades Um, and so I think within the next few years if I can if I can you know have a little bit of a paw print on setting things down a course where there's a lot more forget talking about it but let's do something about diversity or just acceptance Um, just really trying to help younger designers understand the real world of whether it be product design or or just graphic design like that's really where I kind of see myself as you know hopefully continuing to build a few things you know I work with some pretty cool people right now so Hopefully I can continue to build a few things and um, all the while help as much as I can individuals who want to be in my position or want to be better than me. Because that's really what I what I tell people is don't try and be me. Be better than me. You know, if I can help you along the way to take me out of my job, that's the name of the game. You get the job. I don't. I'm, I'm old. <laughs> I'm relatively old. I'm 36. So I don't know what what young is anymore. But uh, mm-hmm. I told uh, another, one guy, I said, um, yeah, you know, you're just you're just starting out your career. I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I think maybe I'm starting a new phase of my career where, you know, I, I feel that I can probably really inspire other individuals in my position to help. And if I can set a good example of that and, you know, people reach out. There, people are, a lot, are really shocked when they reach out and I answer back. I answer questions mm-hmm. and. I respond and well hey maybe have you thought about this or you know hey it's your thing but you know maybe you should look at it this way 
Yeah. I'm, I'm, all, I'm always, and I think this is particularly when I really first started Provision Path, like I was always surprised that people would respond back. Because <laughs> I think, you know, and I mean, it's gotten better now, but really, like when I first started out, I think my success rate was probably about 25, 30%. Mm-hmm. Most people would just say, nope, nope, not interested, don't want to do it. And these are people that I wanted to interview, but then also just from people that I wanted to learn about what I'm doing would right. say, you know what, that's no one's interested in that. No one wants to talk about that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, Well, I think you're doing a great job, man. I think you're, you're putting a voice to individuals that most people don't really see. And I kind of defy people to say, oh, we, we're, we looked, we're looking for candidates. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of hard when you have so many, I know so many, you know, Right. Do I know them in high positions? No. But do I know individuals who are willing to learn, willing to help, willing to join up on a team, willing to join? Um, if the opportunity is there, you know, people are willing. So I think what you're doing is, you know, you're doing a great job, man. I, I truly appreciate anybody who reaches out and asks me questions about my past. <laughs> I think, you know, it gives me a little bit of time to, to just kind of look back and reflect. So it's been it's been awesome to see somebody like yourself reach out to so many people and and get them to answer questions and talk about what they feel and I'm sure it's given you a lot of perspective on the design community as well as you know our place in the design community. Oh absolutely. I think you know probably the, the biggest thing that I've gotten from it is that there's I mean there's so much talent out there from students to agency designers to entrepreneurs. There's so much out there that is just not and really when I even think about the interviews that I've done I haven't even really scratched the surface mm-hmm. of people to talk with mainly not just because I, I mean I think most of the interviews I've done have been from a U.S. perspective but I think I get the most out of talking to black designers that are in Africa black designers that are in Europe like I get just a, a greater sense of sort of how much we're all part of this big huge umbrella that we call design and there are things that I think we certainly might take for granted here in the U.S. For example, I interviewed Kevin Karanja. Uh, Kevin Karanja is a motion graphics artist in Nairobi. And he's a young guy. He's 21. I think he might be 22 now. Um, and has already gotten some really big accolades, has had exhibits. And, you know, he was most most notably, I think, created a an African font, which is... Oh, that's awesome. You know, which is not like what you would see, like a Jurassic Park looking kind of font, but like derived from, you know, African symbols and things like that. So the interesting thing about that interview was that we had to reschedule it about two or three times because where he's at in Nairobi, they're doing this thing called load shedding, where they'll cut off power to parts of the city, like for a whole day. Mm. So there might be days where he can't even work because there's no power. And it just had me thinking, well, you know, that's something that we really take for granted here in the U.S. about, you know, not just availability and Wi-Fi and creative cloud and things like this. I'm like, there's days you can't even work on a project because you physically cannot work on it because there's no electricity. You know, and it makes me think about just how much of design, at least modern design, uh, well, he does motion graphics, but how much of it really is dependent upon you know, technology and on basic sort of needs like this. So, you know, I don't think I would have gotten that unless I would have really talked to someone that is living that kind of, you know, experience. Right, so, right. I, 
I totally get that. Definitely. Where can our audience find you online? Um, pretty active on Twitter, so you can find me at said Funches, C-E-D-F-U-N-C-H-E-S. And you can email me directly, said at saidfunches.com. I try to respond relatively promptly. <laughs> but, you know, if you reach out, I'll try and reach back. But Twitter's probably the easiest way to get at me. Start a conversation, I'll answer, weigh in. I'm working full-time now, so I'm juggling a couple of my clients, and but kind of winding some things down to work full-time with a, uh, with a startup. But, you know, always have time to talk. Always mm-hmm. have time to chat. So those are probably the best places to find me. Awesome, man. Seth Funches, man. Thanks so much, really, for this interview. There's just been there's a lot of, of really good stuff that you mentioned. And, I mean, just when you're talking about your your background and everything like that, just there's there's a lot of stuff here. It's, I just I've, – I've got pages of notes I've been taking while we're oh, wow. doing this interview. So there's – just thank you so much, no really. Problem. I appreciate it. No problem. No, I appreciate you know, everything you're doing. And, uh, you know, if there's anything that I can do in the future to, to help, whether it be – to uh, kind of get your revision path uh, on a new (laughs) path upward. But I'll definitely mention you and other individuals. You know, this could be a great place to kind of mine individuals who who may have been overlooked and maybe involve them in some of the the bigger things that I spoke of uh, in the interview and and get them kind of in front of individuals. Because, you know, you're, you're making a difference, to be honest with you. So I truly appreciate what you're doing. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to said Funches and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to thank our sponsor as well, MailChimp. More than 6 million people use MailChimp to design and send email marketing campaigns. Join them today at MailChimp.com and tell them Revision Pass sent you. Speaking of Revision Pass, uh, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio and you'll be entered into our 50th interview contest. Details are on our website. Just click the banner at the top of the page. We're also, again, on the lookout for guest bloggers and interns. Details about both of those things are on our website. We'd really love to hear from you. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the podcast and what we're doing here, we could really use your support. Go to revisionpath.com forward slash donate and you can drop a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level and show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.